resurrection of Christ. And without his death and resurrection, uh, he would just be another man. And so, uh, whether you're what your cultural background is, what your different race is, it doesn't matter. Uh, it seems that Christians during this week forget all that and they focus on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's two great events that bracket the Holy Week. The triumphal entry, which happened, we're going to talk about this, most believe on Sunday, but I, I tend to believe it happened on Monday, and I'll explain to you why in a little bit. But also the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday the first day of the week. It encompasses some of this week, encompasses some of the most uh, precious, sacred things in our Christian faith. And all those things we hold most dear were proved to be true during this great week in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. So I want to read, uh, Andrew read out of the Gospel of Matthew, I want to read out of the Gospel of Luke this morning. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19... We're familiar with this story. We're familiar with the triumphal entry. But I want to read this for us, and, uh, and then we'll just uh, apply uh, some of the information that we gather here. Verse 28, Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that Jerusalem is up in elevation, uh, where had Jesus been during this time? He was down at the dread, Dead Sea near Jericho there. It's probably about 17 miles straight up to Jerusalem from Jericho. It would be quite a hike for anybody. And so that's why I said he went up to Jerusalem. Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you always go up. In verse 29, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, prepare or peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the ground, in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So after coming down from Galilee, the text tells us there where he had been for a little while, he went through uh, a region called Perea to the east of the Jordan. And, and came back across the Jordan at Jericho, headed up for Jerusalem. Now remember, this is the time of the year, just a little background here on this. Uh, it's the time of the year where everybody is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, it's the Passover season. This is where they went to make their sacrifices. And many actually come the way that Jesus was on his way there. So he is with a large group of people already pressing in around him, and uh, 
leading up to these days, there was already a lot of people there. And because it was Christ, and he had been in this area uh, healing people and doing miracles, miraculous works, people came out of the woodwork because they were obviously impressed with his ministry. And so this crowd around Christ was much larger than any other Passover. Uh, Some believe there there could have been upwards of 3 million people, 2.5 million, 3 million people. They say a lamb is for 10 people, and so that's they know how many lambs were slaughtered, so they can kind of guesstimate how many <clears throat> people were in the area during this Passover season. That's probably why Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem, because he probably couldn't find a place. And so he goes through Jericho, as you remember, during this time, and he stops for two days, and he heals some blind men, blind beggars, who then become not only healed, but forgiven of their sins, and they become his disciples, and now they're part of this group as well. So you have people mixed in the group. They're not all maybe diehard followers of Christ. Some of them are probably just curious. But here you have these blind men in the group going on this journey. I mean, can you imagine them looking around, never having seen these things before, and looking at trees and looking at fruit on the trees, look at all this stuff they're seeing around them, people's faces. I mean, what a wondrous transformation, uh, not only of their vision, but of their souls. It must have been for those blind beggars who were healed. Um, He also, during that time, reached out to a chief tax collector who was probably one of the most hated men in Jericho because he collected taxes from the Jews and he gave it to the Romans kind of betraying his own people. And so Zacchaeus, as you remember the story of Zacchaeus, uh, he was converted as well. And then probably a few weeks before this time, we know that Jesus was in the area and he raised a well-known man by the name of Lazarus in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem on the way to Jericho. So the crowd is getting bigger and bigger because of all these miracles that Jesus had done. And uh, they're probably in line waiting for their miracle. Um, So as they ascend up to this great city, amongst all these, these people, they're really hoping that this is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he is going to bring about the glory of the kingdom of God promised to Israel in the Old Testament. That's what they're looking for. They're not looking for a savior. They're looking for someone who is going to march into Jerusalem with all these people and take over and kick the Romans out and overthrow them. They didn't like being um, ruled by Rome. But the truth of the matter is that's not what's in God's plan, nor Jesus' mind at all. The truth of the matter is he simply knows that he's headed where? He's headed to the cross. That's where he's going. As a matter of fact, he's even told his disciples several times in the gospel accounts. Over and over, he keeps on telling them, I gotta go to Jerusalem and I'll be handed over, and they don't get it. They just cannot comprehend this. It doesn't compute. It doesn't register to them. And so he proceeds on his way up the mountain to Jerusalem to face the unbelievable horrors of his death on the cross as God's chosen sacrifice for sin. 
He heads to the death, really, for which he was born, which the incarnation had to take place for in the first place. It was a ransoming death. It was a redeeming death. It was also a death that reconciled us back to the Father. And so he comes as one who is sinless. He comes to the cross not because he deserves to be there, but he comes as a sinless one, a sinless sacrifice, willing to take the wrath of God for sinners. He's taking the punishment that was due to us, due to all sinners. And he's willing to bear the sinner's punishment and thus satisfy the divine law, divine righteousness, divine wrath, and open the way for forgiveness. If Christ would not have gone to the cross, we would not have salvation. There's no way. And that's why it's such a precious thing. We sing about the cross, and for most people, back then especially, a cross was not something to be praised. A cross was not something to be glorified. A cross was something to be feared. If you were going to the cross, you were going to die. There was no doubt about it, and it was going to be a miserable death. But he comes to not only die, but he comes, as we know, to be risen, to be raised on the third day. And when he rose from the dead, he not only conquered death, but he conquered sin for all who believe. And then we know the life of Christ. He ascends into heaven, and he leaves the gates of heaven wide open for all who believe and who are willing to come to him for forgiveness and follow him. But make no doubt about it, he comes here to die. That's his purpose. That's his plan. It's the plan of God. Now later he will come back, and he's not going to die then. What's he going to do? He's going to rule. He's going to reign, uh, really with, with an iron fist. So it's, it's the time in which we live now is the age of grace, we call it, the church age, the time where you can come to Christ Repent of your sins, turn from your sins, turn to the Savior, and you know what? You're forgiven. But in the future, that won't be. After the church is taken up and after Christ returns to the earth in glory to reign and rule for a thousand years, it's too late. And so you don't want to meet Christ as your judge, trust me. It's much better to meet Jesus as your Savior, as one who's willing to forgive you, not willing to judge you. Because if Christ judges you, I guarantee you, you will be found guilty. We all are guilty. The Bible says that we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. So he's come, the sinless one has come to to face the wrath of God for sinners, to bear sinners' punishment and satisfy Uh, God's divine righteousness and divine wrath and open up the way of forgiveness for us. Well, up to this point, when you think of the life of Christ, you think of someone who is pretty humble. If you remember when Jesus was doing his miracles and everything, it was the disciples who were constantly trying to, you know, get the fervor going. And sometimes Jesus would just shut everything down. You remember? I mean, you know, there were times when he had thousands of people at his beck and call. And he'd say, oh, see you later. I'm out of here. Or when people would try to give him adulation, he didn't want it. 
He never allowed that kind of open display of, of uh, honor in any way up to this point. Now, it doesn't mean because he wasn't the Messiah. He had always been the Messiah. He was always the king. He really even always was demonstrating his deity, showing that he was God over and over and over again. There's no doubt about that, but he put his deity on display constantly. But whenever someone would would try to worship him, try to exalt him, he didn't want it. And you say, well, I wonder why that is. Uh, I mean, it would have been right. He's God. He's the Messiah. Why wouldn't he want that kind of worship? Why wouldn't he want someone to celebrate the glorious nature of his being? But he never allowed it. In fact, if it ever began, he actually stopped it. He caused it to stop. This is the only time here on his ride into Jerusalem that he allowed it. And you may ask why. Well, because it's God's time. This is God's perfect plan unfolding before our eyes. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders were intimidated by him. Not just at the end, the whole time. They were intimidated by him. It didn't take long for that intimidation to turn to hatred. And very early, really, even in his ministry, the religious leaders of Jesus' time wanted him dead. They said, this guy is stealing our thunder. We don't like this individual. And there were plots to execute him very early on in his ministry. And so Jesus knew, being God, that if he had any kind of massive public display that would, that would lead to them thinking that somehow these people are going to crown him king and follow him and worship him, those hated leaders would really bring about a premature death of Christ. And so he really manipulated them in every way. But now it's, it's time for him to die. It's God's time. Now he is intent on inflaming his enemies against him. It's exactly the right time because he knows he wants to be on that cross on Friday. Isn't it funny how God's timing is never off in our lives? Sometimes we think it is. We think, man, why is this happening now in my life? But God knows exactly what's happening in your life, and he's allowing it to happen for a very specific purpose. You may not understand it at the time, but that's okay. Don't ever think that things happen by accident or that somehow they they happen outside of the purview of the God that saved you and the God that you serve. Our Lord is sovereign over all those things. And so it should cause us to pause when we're faced with a trial or a, a temptation or anything, realizing that, hey, you know what? This isn't catching God by surprise. Why should it catch me by surprise? But now, here, it's time for Christ to die. He needed to be on that cross by Friday. And he intends to set in motion such a hatred at a massive level that the leaders of Israel can no longer wait to eliminate him. They're going to bring about his death. 
He wants to die by God's plan, and he will die on Friday because Friday is what? Friday is the Passover. Friday is when all the people will sacrifice their Passover lambs. And he is the one true sacrifice for sin, pictured above all the other offerings that we see in Scripture. And so his timing is divine. His timing is perfect. The public display must happen now and only now. And so that's exactly what what begins to happen as you read through the text. There are a lot of people, as I said, may, may have been upwards of 3 million people History tells us there's a record that says that there was 260,000 Passover lambs slaughtered. Can you even imagine that? That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of stuff happening. And they say because, like I said, the one lamb for 10 people is about 2 million, 3 million people. It's huge. Some people estimate the crowd that was actually coming with Jesus was a quarter of a million people. 250,000 people traveling with Christ into Jerusalem. You could see where the religious leaders would be a little unnerved. You could see even where the, the Romans were a little unnerved. And it, it accomplished its goal. It, it pressed all the, the buttons necessary to activate his enemies to get his death done fast and quickly. That's exactly what the, needed to be done. What they did out of hatred was what God determined would be done out of love. See, God even uses the enemies for his plan, for his purpose. And Jerusalem had to be the place because Jerusalem were, was where all the sacrifices were made at that time. That's where the altar was. That's where the temple was. That was God's city. That was the holy city, the temple city, the place where God met his people, the place where God was worshipped, and the only place where sacrifices were made. So he had to be there in God's cities where, where God met his people and where sacrifices were offered for sin. So Jerusalem is the place. The time is now. And it has to be this Passover. Some commentators say it has to be this Passover in A.D. 30. They believe that's when it actually happened. And the reason they believe that is because that's exactly 483 years after Daniel's prophecy. Back in Daniel chapter 9. The prophecy of Daniel coming from God that was in the 69 times 7 weeks. 7 weeks of years 69 times, seven weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. He would be killed 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes made his decree in 444 B.C. So 483 years later, the prophet says the Messiah will be cut off. That's the year A.D. 30. It's amazing how the Bible just all fits together. It's not by chance. It couldn't happen by chance. It's God's plan. It must happen in this city in this year, and it must happen on Friday when the Passover lambs are executed. Now, I made a statement earlier. A lot of people call it Palm Sunday. Uh, There's some people that believe it happened on Monday, the triumphal entry. And 
I believe that, and I'll tell you why. Palm Sunday is probably um, most likely, this triumphal entry probably happened on Monday, not Sunday. A little background here might help us. Um, The Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and Luke, they all describe these events together. And they all give us little tidbits of information that we can put together in a timeline. And when you fit all the details together, the story is complete. It makes perfect sense. When John chapter 12, it tells us that Jesus visited Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, they were a family, obviously, that Jesus loved. He had raised Lazarus from the, the dead before this time. And they lived in Bethany, two miles east of Jerusalem, behind the Mount of Olives. And so it's a little village is tucked behind the mountain. And he stayed with this family that he loved, the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus. Well, John says this, that he came there to visit them six days before Passover. That makes it probably Saturday. On the Jewish Sabbath, he came there. As he faced the coming week of his impending death, all the pain he was going to go through, he sought the comfort of his beloved friends. Seems kind of makes sense to do that, to reach out to those who love you when you realize you're going to be dead in a matter of days. And while he was just with his friends there, you remember Mary anointed his feet with that costly perfume, you remember that? And he wiped, she wiped, him, uh, wiped his feet with her hair. And she shows that she's devoted to him. And at the end of that event, remember Judas, the treasurer, the one that would betray him, was furious. He was angry because he thought, what a waste. Well, he didn't think that he was going to go feed the poor. He wanted that money. That was his intent. And so the Bible says, he said that because he held the purse, he wanted out, and he wanted out with as much money as he could get. That's what his intentions were. That all happened on Saturday. Well, the next day was Sunday. And if the timeline is right, a great number of Jews came from Bethany, um, came to Bethany to see Christ. They knew he was there. They knew where he was staying. They heard about all these people pouring into the city of Jerusalem, and they knew that Christ was in Bethany, so they went to visit him. And in John 12, 9, it says they came there not just to see him, but it says they came there to see Lazarus. This is the guy that was raised from the dead. I mean, if there was a guy in Redwood City that was raised from the dead, I'd want to go see him, wouldn't you? Ask him, what was it like? What happened? I mean, everybody knew that Lazarus was dead. He was very well known, and everybody knew that he was raised from the dead by Christ. That's on Sunday, the first day of the week. In fact, the crowd was so huge that John tells us in the next verse that the chief priests took counsel, not just how they would kill Christ, but they wanted to do in Lazarus too. They said, this guy's getting too much press. Let's just kill him. So they wanted Lazarus dead. Why? Because he was evidence. He was evidence that Christ did something miraculous. So here's the, here's the chronology. That would basically put the triumphal entry on Monday. It works better on Monday because 
The crowds come to him on Sunday. He arrives at their home on Saturday. The crowd comes on Sunday. And on Monday, he comes into the east gate of the city. What happens if you believe it was Sunday, you have Wednesday, and there's nothing happening on Wednesday at all. If you, if you hold to a Palm Sunday version versus a Palm Monday version. So it seems kind of odd that there would be nothing happening in the middle of the week of the, the last day of Christ's death. Wednesday is blank if you have them on Sunday, but if you have them coming on Monday, it fills up. So the chronology of the week adds to that. Secondly, there's a mosaic requirement that the sacrificial lamb for Passover was to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. That's very important. And what they would do is they would select the lamb, but then they would keep it as a pet in the household. And then they would sacrifice the pet on the 14th day. Sounds kind of hard to believe, those of you who love animals. So they would take the lamb into their home. The lamb would, you know, be a pet in the home. And then the lamb would be killed. It would be slaughtered. It would be sacrificed. Why? Because that lamb would become beloved by the family. So it meant something. It wasn't just some lamb off the hill. It had lived with the family. And in that year, by the way, the year that Jesus was crucified in A.D. 30, Monday was the day when they selected the lamb. History tells us. So if Jesus entered the day triumphantly on Monday, uh, the city triumphantly on Monday, he was received into the hearts, the picture is he was received into the hearts of the Jewish people as much as a family receives a sacrificial lamb. Only later several days later, to be sacrificed on Friday. And so the week would go something like this. On Saturday, he was anointed. The next day, Sunday, there's a great crowd that comes to Bethany to see him. On Monday is the triumphal entry. He comes into the city. He goes to the temple. At night, he returns to Bethany because nobody's at the temple when he gets there. On Tuesday, he comes from Bethany back into Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree on the way, cleanses the temple when he gets there because they're there. The religious leaders get even more angry with him, and they want to destroy him. At the end of that Tuesday, he goes back once again to Bethany, and he stays there with his friends. Because remember, Jerusalem is filled up. There's no room there. On Wednesday, he comes back into Jerusalem And he has another day-long controversy with the religious leaders. It's then when we have the Olivet Discourse. It's then when you have the sermon of his second coming recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. He predicts that he's going to be crucified in two days at the Passover, which is exactly what happened. That's when Judas plans his betrayal. All that happens on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, what happens? He meets with his disciples. He eats the Passover meal in the upper room. He gives the, the, the great final discourse to his disciples we read about. And then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays to the Father. Friday comes. That's when he's arrested. He's tried. He's crucified in the afternoon. On Saturday, he's in the grave. On Sunday, he's risen from the dead. All this is in the mind of Christ as he's going through this. He knows all this is going to happen. And the people surrounding Christ as he rides into Jerusalem with all these weighty things on his mind, all the people can think about is that he's coming to bring us glory. Hosanna, he's coming. 
But see, there couldn't be any glory until there was a cross. The cross is a necessary part of glory. There couldn't be a kingdom until there was a sacrifice for sin. The people didn't understand that, but that's the truth. Now this morning, as we focus on this, a lot of times we, we read about the triumphal entry. And sometimes we don't get down to the details. Did you ever ask why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Why were people waving palm branches? Why were they crying out, Hosanna? What's all that mean? Uh, usually, Palm Sunday of the week, of the Holy Week, is the most misunderstood day of the week. Now, I think that you would agree with me that today most people reject truth in our world. They don't want to hear it. Well, in this triumphal entry, when Christ rode into Jerusalem, it was truth that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's back. It was truth himself. And although the crowds cheered the truth, beneath the surface there was a conflict that was going on. There was a rage that was beginning. The majority did not want the truth that day. Nor have they wanted the truth on any day since then. We live in a world today that nobody wants to hear the truth. If you claim to have the truth on anything, you're pious, you're whatever. Well, this Monday began as all the other days, an early sunrise, the sound of the merchants opening their little shops. Bethany wasn't a large town or even a a town at all. It was more like a village. A little simple cluster of homes gathered together. Here and there, the farmers made ready to go to the fields. Planting season was upon them. Mothers busied themselves getting their children up and dressed, breakfast. But in one home, things were a little different. In one home, things were different because Jesus was there. It was the home of Mary and Martha, these two sisters who lived together along with their brother Lazarus. And and Jesus, in the time of his ministry, had visited them many times. They were very close friends. Their home was really a special place of refuge for him. But I can only imagine this time his visit was a little off. It was a little different. There was something different about Jesus. This time he had come for a funeral, but it turned into a celebration. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Hundreds of people had seen him do it. And by now thousands more heard the news So all this is leading up to this day. It was clear that Jesus was not staying here much longer. They didn't understand how this was going to happen. They just thought something was different. He had that look about him, kind of like a a look where a man is on a mission No one else knew what was going to happen. Even the disciples, even though he tried to tell them several times, they didn't get it. They didn't know what was going to happen when he rode into Jerusalem. Now, a couple things here, a couple facts 
One is that the story of the triumphal entry is repeated in detail in all four Gospels. So it's a major part of the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ. It's, it's important to understand that because there's something crucial that's about to happen here. It's not just a, you know, a little event. The other fact that you read in this story that impresses us is that Jesus is in complete control of everything that's about to happen. He's in complete control. Unlike other events in his life, he's not reacting to anyone or anything else. No one expects him to do what he's about to do. No one. They have no clue. There's no sick people. There's no Pharisees to confront. There's no storms to still. There's no dead men to raise. There's no puzzling questions that need to be answered. What Jesus does, those are all reactions to what people pressed upon Jesus. But here, Jesus does, he does of his own accord. The story here begins with a donkey. (laughs) They go to the local village and they take the donkey from the owner and it all works out just the way Jesus described it. When you read, when you heard Andrew read Matthew this morning, you realize that the disciples actually brought back two donkeys, his mother and a young colt. Um, And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the younger colt with the mother probably walking alongside. Matthew also tells us by riding a donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus was fulfilling an ancient prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Bring your king. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. And is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? This was 575 years before this happened. God foretold it. He predicted it through Zechariah. And so those words tell us two specific facts about the Messiah. First of all, he will come as a gentle king riding on a donkey. It was a humble coming. It wasn't, he wasn't on a white stallion with a sword ready to overthrow Rome. But secondly, it tells us that he will come as a righteous king bringing salvation to his people. So this procession begins on a donkey. I mean, it it seems very unlikely for a king to come riding into town on a donkey. That's just not the way a king is supposed to come in. But it's not very unlikely, unlike from what Christ, the way Christ was born. He was born in a very humble circumstances. I mean, this was a very unlikely way for Christ to present himself to the nation of Israel. I'm going to ride in on a donkey. I mean, if Scripture had not predicted this, if it it wouldn't have been in Zechariah, no one would ever said, hey, let's put him on a donkey. (laughs) That sounds like a great idea. You you couldn't think of such a thing. And, you know, it, it really gives us an indication. That's why the Romans sat by. And they said, look at this silly guy. He thinks he's a king. And he's riding in on a donkey? I mean, who would do that? He's no threat. They mocked him. 
While tens of thousands of people flocked to Jesus, they thought the whole thing was a joke. That's why they didn't do anything about it at first. No self-respecting king would be caught dead on a donkey. I mean, you'd ride in on a war horse with a sword or something and make a big impact. Here you have this pauper king riding on a borrowed donkey. His saddle, he didn't even have a saddle. He had to lay down cloaks of cloth on the, the animal. And he had all these crazy people waving palm branches around. You know, he didn't look like much of a king that day. He really didn't. But that was the whole point. That's the point of this whole illustration. He's a king, but you know what? He's not like any earthly king at all. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. The triumphal entry was really an acted parable. It was a story to be told. It sent a clear message for the the, uh, nation of Israel. This is what I am. I am your king, but I am not the king that you are expecting. As Jesus began this three-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, the people along the road began to do something no one else could have predicted. What'd they do? As Jesus passed by, they waved palm fronds. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and we would, on Palm Sunday, we'd get a palm. What does that mean? Why do we do that? In the Old Testament, the Jews were told to wave palm fronds as part of the feast of what? Tabernacles. 200 years before Christ, during the Maccabean uh, rebellion, when the Jews temporarily regained control of the temple from the Syrians, they celebrated how? By waving palm fronds. 30 years after the death of Christ, during the rebellion that led up to the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 30, or AD 70, excuse me, the Jews minted coins. And you know what was on the coin? The image of a palm branch on one side. Taking this all together, we may say that the time of Christ, in the time of Christ, palm branches represented joy, they represented celebration. They were a symbol of national liberation to the Jews. And so when they were waving these palm branches before Jesus, it was similar to giving him, you know, what we call today a, a, a ticker tape parade. It'd be like having a big military parade and honoring all the vets that come back from the wars. When you have a parade, you see a lot of American flags. Well, here, what was representative of them was these palm branches. So the people were holding these up. They were waving them. And they were basically giving the message, this is the man, this is the day, this is the time. It was the welcome given to kings and to conquerors. And so really what they were saying was, right on, King Jesus, no, nobody's going to stand in your way. Look at all these people you got behind you. It's Monday morning, four days before Passover. All these people swelled the streets. Everyone who was ever, anyone would be in, in Jerusalem for the Passover during that time. Everyone knew 
that there was some animosity, I think, between Jesus and the temple leaders. They'd had several confrontations. This wasn't a secret. Maybe they began to think, I wonder if Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's kind of risky. Why would he take that chance? Would he maybe just not go, take a safe safe route, stay, stay away altogether? What, what's the, the issue here? Well, you know, there's a lot of political anger and ferment that's going on in Israel during this time. There were three main political parties. You had the Pharisees. They patiently endured the Roman rule. You had the Zealots who, who didn't patiently endure anything. <laughs> they, they hated the Romans. They were like terrorists themselves. And then you had the Sadducees. And what they did is they ran the whole temple complex. And they cooperated with the Romans. And you stop and you think, well, you had the Romans themselves. You had two key rulers here, Pontius Pilate and, and Herod Antipas. And so the stage is set. Everything is in place perfectly. And into this unstable situation, who comes riding on a donkey? Jesus. As Jesus leaves Bethany for Bethphage and the Mount of Olives, hundreds of people are running alongside of him. The crowd is growing. And if you read John's account, you realize there's another large crowd gathering in Jerusalem. And having heard that Jesus is on his way, they actually leave the city and they begin to approach the Mount of Olives where the, the two great crowds meet. And there's this huge group of singing and shouting, laughing, dancing, chanting. They're, hey, their Messiah is on the way. He's going to overthrow Rome. Inside the city, you have the chief priests and the scribes. They're looking at this situation and realizing, wow, we got, we got a, something on our hands here. we got to deal with this. It's the public display of support for Jesus. That's the last thing they wanted. They wanted people to mock him. He's on a donkey. But that wasn't happening. The people were beginning to rally behind Christ. It appeared to these religious leaders probably that the whole world had flipped over to Jesus' side somehow. And their shock turns to dismay and then to anger as the reports keep pouring in. There's more people. There's more people. What are we going to do? And the minutes turn to hours on that Monday while two streams of human emotion just converge. On the one hand, there's the rising excitement of the followers of Christ near, as he nears the eastern gate. On the other hand, there's a mounting opposition as the leaders decide that Jesus will not leave that city alive. So you have shouts of people growing louder by the moment as they approach the city. All four accounts tell us that they shouted. Look at what they shouted. First of all, they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the second thing they shouted was, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the Hebrew word meaning save now. That's literally what it means. 
Every observant Jew immediately recognized the second statement as a quotation of Psalm 118. That's one of the the best-known Messianic Psalms. And by shouting these words, the people were, in effect, identifying Jesus as their promised Messiah. The people believed that the Messiah had come. And you know what? They were right. They were right. It's overlooked sometimes that Jesus gladly accepted the praise of the people on this Monday. Because most of his ministry, he didn't do that. Matter of fact, when, even when he worked a miracle, sometimes he'd say, don't tell anybody. <laughs> see, he wanted people to see him as more than a, just a mere miracle worker. But not today. The time for silence was long past. If he once discouraged publicity, he now counts silence inconceivable. The time for truth had come. And when the Pharisees heard the crowds praising him, they urged him to rebuke your disciples. And he said, you know what, if I tell them to be quiet, what's he say? Even the rocks themselves will break forth in praise to me. What a statement. Verse 41, it says, when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he doing there? He's really, as he comes over that that southern shoulder of the Mount of Olives, you come to a a crest. When you reach the crest, the whole city of, of Jerusalem, I remember seeing this when we were over there, suddenly appears before your eyes. You see the whole city. I mean, it's interesting. He breaks he breaks down, he begins to weep. And he's not weeping because, oh man, I'm going to die. No, he's weeping not for himself. He's weeping for the, the, the city that was about to reject him, for the people that were about to reject him. He saw the, beyond the, the, the cheering crowd that surrounded him. And he clearly saw the mob that was going to crucify him. He knew on that Monday that Good Friday was only a couple days away. He saw into history, even into the future, when the Roman army would sack Jerusalem once again in A.D. 70. Really prophesied that right there. He knew the nation would soon turn away from him. He also saw through the the misty future to the day when the Romans would destroy the city stone by stone, killing men, women, children by the thousands. See, God's son had come and they, they crucified him. They crucified him. He knew everything about him. He knew the crowds were fickle. He knew the leaders were plotting against him. He knew the cheers would soon turn to jeers. He knew on that Monday 
what would happen that Friday. He knew the cross lay directly in his path. He knew all those things, and yet he went anyway. He went because he loved us. He cared for us. He wanted to provide a way of salvation for us. King Jesus rode on that donkey into that city that day because he had an appointment in Jerusalem. I mean, you couldn't have made it any plainer. Tried to explain to his disciples several times. They didn't understand. But the nation had a a clear choice to make. And so did the rulers. The Romans did nothing to interfere. The priests, they stood by and, and, and watched it all happen. Every man had a choice to make that day. Every man in Jerusalem made a choice. For better or worse, the die was cast. There was mixed reactions once Christ was in the city. Wild confusion reigns. The king has come. What will the people do? What well, we see in the story, the, the disciples praise him openly. The children praise him innocently. The crowds cheer him, but they don't understand him. The city's curious, but they're not committed. And that leaves the religious leaders, the group of the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders of of Israel, the rulers of the Sanhedrin, what will they say? How will they respond? The people have spoken, but will their rulers follow suit? And there's three words that sum up the official reaction to Jesus on that Monday. Fright, frustration, and anger. Fright, frustration, and anger. Fright because they do not know what Jesus is up to. What's he doing? Frustration because so many people cheer him as he rides into the city. How are they doing this? He's on a donkey, for goodness sake. And then anger because now they see him even more as an enemy of their own interests. And really an enemy who must be eliminated. The time is up. The luxury of idle discussion is past. The time for decision has come. See, very soon the nation of Israel must render its verdict concerning Jesus Christ. Think about it. The evidence is in. The jury has been instructed. The verdict must soon be returned. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, Jesus Christ is the object of faith. Either, or one either believes, him, believes in him or is offended by him. Either you believe in him or you're offended by him. There's only two choices to be made here. You either believe in Christ or you are offended by Christ. The truth about Jesus is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. You can't stay in the middle forever. In Matthew's account, he includes a fascinating notice. Jesus approached Jerusalem on On that Monday, Matthew says that the whole city was stirred. That that phrase there means it was shaken to its very core. I mean, people began to ask each other, who is this man? And the answer would come back, it is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. 
I mean, the answer's true, but that's as far as it goes. He is a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. He is from Galilee, but that's not his ultimate hometown. The people of Jerusalem asked the right question and gave an answer that was almost right. Almost right. See, but (laughs) the thing you have to understand is in the spiritual realm, things that are almost right are not good enough. They're not good enough. They were close, but they weren't close enough. (laughs) But what can we learn from this quickly? A couple lessons here. First of all, you know, if you want this, what was this all about? It kind of goes like this. Jesus was sending a message to Israel on this day, a message that the time for decision had come. No longer would people have the privilege of discussing his credentials in some abstract manner. On this day, Jesus presented himself to the nation asking for an immediate decision. And the answer he received was not encouraging. Although the crowds cheered him as he rode in, they did not understand him. Although the leaders understood him, they did not cheer him. Israel came close, so close on that day to embracing God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. But close wasn't good enough. After this Monday, the only thing left was Golgotha, the cross. So the first lesson we can learn is spiritual opportunities don't last forever. Spiritual opportunities don't last forever. Where Jesus Christ is involved, no one can sit and wait forever. There comes a time when a decision must be rendered for or against the Son of God. See, in spiritual matters, not to decide is to decide. To say not now is really to say no. It's not enough to be interested in Jesus, to be interested in church. Millions of people who are interested in in Jesus have no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. The people in Jesus' day, on this day, were interested. The whole city was interested. They were stirred to their very core, but not to the point of action. Hear my words. Mere interest in Jesus will never, ever, ever save you. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves only those who believe. Not those who talk about believing. Interest is good if it leads on to action. But if not, interest will eventually harden your heart into disinterest and ultimately into hatred of the very thing you were interested in. Spiritual neutrality is a temporary way station. It's not a a permanent destination. No one stays there forever. One either believes in Christ or is offended by him. There's a time to think, and there's a time to decide. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to discuss and a time to make up your mind. This message today in the text of Scripture, this triumphal entry reminds us, reminds each of us, that sooner or later you have to make up your minds about Jesus Christ. 
Someone said, the reason we do not see truth is not that we have not read enough books or do not have enough academic degrees, but that we do not have enough courage. If knowledge alone would save us, the whole world would be saved, beloved. But knowledge without courage leads you to kind of an intellectual cul-de-sac. You just end up going around in circles. It takes courage to believe in Christ. It takes courage to make that important decision into the spiritual realm. Rarely is knowledge the root of the problem. Most people will not make that decision because they lack the courage to embrace the truth that's been revealed to them. So spiritual opportunities don't last forever. Secondly, the world that rejected Jesus Christ still rejects him today. This isn't news. The people of the world hate Christ. They hate the things of God. The same way the Pharisees hated. The same way the crowds, their cheers turned into hatred for Christ. To them, religion is an intellectual affair that never touches the heart. But trust me, Jesus will have none of that. If a man will not give Christ his heart, Jesus wants no part of you. Make no mistake. If Jesus Christ came riding into Redwood City today, you know what? He would be crucified all over again. The third thing we can learn from this is the invitation is not to believe but to be brave. Christ comes again and again to the human heart. Each time a verdict must be rendered. Look, Jesus is coming to Redwood City. Your king has come. What are you going to do with him? You've heard the message here this morning. Will you join with those who crucify him? Or will you join with those who cry out, Hosanna, 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 God saves now. See, our greatest need is for the moral courage to make the right moral choices. When the come, time comes to take sides with Jesus, all you need is courage enough to do the right thing, to stand up, to make that decision God is prompting you to make. It's not an invitation to believe, but to be brave. The brave join those little children who praise Him gladly while the timid are left to dream about what might have been. See, God will take care of your inability to believe the gospel. I I totally know that to be true. He will transform you. He will transform your mind. He will open your eyes to the glorious truth of God's offer of grace and forgiveness and love through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You simply need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You simply need to turn from your sin to the Savior who's willing and who wants to forgive you and wash away your sins. Well, on this day, all the, all the shouting stopped. All the shouting stopped the day Jesus died. His enemy, they stopped shouting because the object of their hatred was dead. Even his followers lost their shout. <laughs> you stop and think about it because... The object of their affection was dead. There was Christ on the cross, dead. But let me remind you, 
there comes a day, just three days later, when the shouting started up again. See, I'm not here today to preach to you a dead Savior. We don't preach a dead Savior. I'm here to tell you about a Savior who died on the cross and who rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. I'm here to tell you about the one who is alive forever to provide you with salvation if you'll simply just come to him. I want to ask you, are you saved today? Are you sure you're trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you walking in fellowship with him today? Are there needs in your life that only he can meet? If there are needs, if there are burdens, if there are sins, if there's anything at all that needs to be taken care of, I pray that you will bring it to Jesus even now in this moment. It's the only, way, the only place you can go to. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the work of Christ in our life. Lord, that he grants to us repentance, that he grants to us salvation in Christ. But Lord, we, st- we still need to respond. I know that seems kind of counter- counterintuitive, but we need to respond to the glorious gospel of Christ. We need to admit that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. We need to come to him broken, contrite over our sin, willing to embrace him as our Lord and King and Master and Savior. Then and only then will he save us. So, Father, we pray today for those souls that are gathered here this morning. I pray for each one that they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they sit here today a transformed individual, that their old person is gone and all things have become new in Christ. If there's any that are here today that have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I I I beg, I plead with them to consider the call of the gospel that calls you to repentance, that calls you to turn from your sin to the Savior. Ask the Lord to help you even in your unbelief. He will do that. That's a prayer that we can pray. Help help me to make sense of everything I've heard today, Lord. I don't want a chance going into eternity not having these things in place, not having my salvation secured, not having my sins forgiven. Father, we look forward to this next week as we celebrate your son's death on Good Friday, but then also as we gather together on Resurrection Sunday and celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would just Take us through this week. I pray that we'd look for opportunities to reach out, to invite people, that we would share the gospel with people this week. This time of year, people are open to talk about spiritual things. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would enable us to do so by the power of your Spirit. Father, we pray you'd bless our time over across the way in the fellowship halls. We enjoy a meal together. Just pray that you'd bless the food of our bodies, bless our fellowship. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has any questions about anything that was said here today, Lord, I pray that they would seek someone out. Come speak to me, Ken, anybody, Lord, that they would, they would want to clarify anything that was said, Father, that they could do that uh, and have it uh, explained to them. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.